Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I don't have much of a party, but I kind of saw an opportunity to... That's the last time they had a leadership convention. Yeah, can you believe that? 13 years. Unbelievable. Eh? The Democratic, you know... She's done a good job, but on the other hand, she's still just her. So She's done a great job, and we needed it. And I still kind of consider myself a green, but, you know, that's, uh, it is the Elizabeth May party. But we knew where we were getting, but, yeah, she's done a great job. <coughs> but, uh, so I'm a 10-time, like I said, a 10-time green, and now I've been red-pilled, brother. I'm totally, I can't get with the left ideology, you know what I mean? So I'm frustrated that way, but open enough to say, hey, I changed how I feel. Eh? So. Well, some of the others have, too. Patrick Moore has changed and uh, hmm. lots of lots of greens. Because the problem is uh, capitalism is better for the environment than the alternative. Because people, when they own property, usually maintain it. And uh, But I myself, I'm trying not to take plastic anywhere. So it's hard to do carrying all my stuff home and carrying bags around me at all times or whatever. But I'm getting very disturbed about how the world can't handle the plastic. <laughs> all right, Barra. So I think we're going good now. I'm just going to check to see. Who won tonight? Uh, the Blue Jays, if you're talking about that. Yeah. They did. They uh, look good. Their pitching looks terrific, generally. Hmm. And their hitters awoke enough today. Awesome. All right, Mark Emery, I really appreciate your time, man. I've been chasing you for a long time. Uh, bumped into your wife many years ago at a 420 rally. I've, or not a rally, uh, to the convention center. Uh, you were probably in jail in the States. Yeah, but, I probably yeah. was. That was uh, one of the early Lyft conferences, I think. Anyway, I'm coming back to Vancouver uh, for the 420 this year. So Jody and I will be together on stage and in the Vancouver community and certainly at the big 420 rally, which we hope gets the same amount of people as always. So the Prince of Pot, you came by that. Man, you really earned that title. We talked a little bit just before briefly we're going on air here about Jack Herrer some of the leaders of the movement back in the day. And, and yeah. you're one of those guys. I got guys. good stories about Jack. Jack came up in 1991 to London, Ontario. Back in those days, all books and magazines about cannabis were illegal in Canada from 1987 to 1994. So I started my campaign selling in 1991. In the summer, in May 1991, I had Jack come up and autograph copies of his book. And we were also hoping to get arrested at the very same time. It took us four years before we did get arrested, but we struck down that part of the law in July 1994, but it took seven years. So there's seven years in Canada where you won't find High Times magazine around. And the 1985 print run of Grow Your Own Stone was seized by the RCMP, the entire print run, and burned. Little things you don't know about in Canadian history. Canadian cannabis history. Yeah, awesome. What's uh, Tell me about your frustration with the you know no, the new quote legalization and well how it's not legalization stuff. i wish people would never use that word um i call it canada's dystopian legalization shit show for example there's a guy in winnipeg only yesterday was sentenced to 10 months in jail for 85 grams of weed i've got like a 500 grams of weed in my own home here the th- idea that somehow somebody can get 10 months jail for having what I consider a piddly amount, a ridiculously trivial amount of cannabis is outlandish. Other people are getting five months to six months to a year for having pounds, but I sold like over a thousand kilos and I didn't go to jail, right? I got a whopping fine, which if I don't pay, I will go to jail. Um, and that's a possibility, but typically we don't have legalization. The, the, the uh, police in Ontario are giving out 21 to 25 tickets a day that's 7,500, 8,000 tickets a year for cannabis in Ontario. So that's about the same rate as it was during the Prohibition. I don't think anything's changed except big corporate kahunas, a lot of whom are cops, are now able to sell at ridiculously high prices in these government monopoly outlets. It's very suspicious that no one in the cannabis culture is really involved in this legalization. These are all like carpetbaggers from the corporate world. 
Mm. Regrets? Oh, um, I never should have asked the government to legalize pot, and I should have told people we should never ask them. What we should do is tell the police to stop arresting us, which is an entirely different matter. Stop arresting us is obvious, but asking them to legalize it is letting them write the rules for our culture. And in the same way that homosexuals wouldn't write their code of conduct, have it written by uh, heterosexuals, or vegans wouldn't have their dietary menu prescribed to them by meat eaters, and nor would Muslims want to have Jews or Christians telling them how to worship, the cannabis culture um, has been greatly insulted by having the government, our enemy of over 100 years, arrested two and a half million of us, and now they want to be our exclusive monopoly distributors of our herb. They want to have their people train ours people when they work in stores. You can see the whole message is that the government wants to obviously usurp the culture by teaching our employees in stores, uh, monopolizing the distribution of cannabis, uh, restricting uh, the growth of it in factory farms, which will be the height of mediocrity at best, and excluding everybody who's actually involved in the culture. None of us are invited. You don't find anybody who's been growing weed for 10, 20 years. Suddenly, they're now given a license and they're happily growing pot in their own little organic gardens. No, there's none of that going on. Tell me about political affiliation. I know you've tried it here and there. Kind of. Oh, I've joined and voted for every party. I'm not kidding. If I go from one end of the spectrum, uh, I certainly supported Elizabeth May in, I think, 2006. Uh, Jack Layton in the NDP 2004, again in 2008, even 2011, but by then it was clear he wasn't going to get anything done. He went backwards there. I supported the Liberals uh, in the last election. Uh, I don't often do that. Um, and I joined the Conservative Party to vote for Maxime Bernier for the leadership of that, and now I'm a, uh, a member of the People's Party because uh, I love Max. I think he's the best. I like Max politician. too, man. <laughs> just I don't well, Max know. Is great. There's he's so many reasons I, you can say. I, I, hey, relate, he's... I relate to him on every level, even though he never talks about cannabis. You know, I know how he feels, but it's kind of a landmine to walk in the cannabis field, um, especially since it's really not something a lot of the members of the People's Party really get. They're mostly free marketeers, though, so there's a good core there. And I'm hoping they get 5 to 7% and Max gets reelected in his home riding of Bose. I can't see them making dents anywhere else because the Trudeau's helped damage his own popularity. I don't believe Canadians are going to vote for someone who has a turban on. I'm sorry, they won't. Um, maybe that's my inherent racism or something, but uh, I'm suspicious of Indian politics. I lived in India for a year. I'm suspicious of Sikh politics. Um, and I don't think he relates to the Canadian ordinary person. His slick suits, his lawyer background, his Sikh background, to me, is not something I can relate to. And I'm not, I, I don't think Canadians are going to relate to it. And I think the NDP is going to do a, a record bad, get a bad response. And considering the Liberal are in trouble now, that greatly favors the Conservatives. Andrew Shears is bland and uninspiring and is... It's the same as every other politician you've ever heard, including Singh and Trudeau and Harper all rolled into one obsequious, you know, yeah. kind of bilious, annoying thing. We're laughing. But he's going to win. He's going to win. Maybe only yeah. a minority, though. Mm. So we'll see what that produces. Well, and I'm glad you said that, too. There's something to be said about minority governments. And did you ever get behind the proportional representation movement for uh, uh, Fair Vote Canada or anything like that? Generally, I, I'm, I'm like most libertarian anarchistic types is that I don't even believe in voting as a concept. I don't believe my vote, or rather my life, should be voted on. And so all these people voting for this representative every four years and giving them carte blanche to impose all these horrible laws on me, uh, it goes against my nature, but I also want to engage in our political system because we don't have any alternatives. So when you say, do I favor proportional representation? Yeah, if everybody who got over 2% was represented, I'd find that fair because then libertarians would get elected enough to have some representatives and pot people probably as well. I think pot people could get together 2% because we have an abomination in the Cannabis Act. So I would suspect most Canadians who smoke cannabis are very unhappy with the regime we've got. And if 2% was the threshold, 
then uh, that would be worthwhile for libertarians, for cannabis people. Hell, you could get a whole bunch of fringe parties with representation. And then we'd really see some fun, right? Because huh. you'd still get those mainstream parties with their 20-25%, but you'd probably have 10 smaller parties between 2 and 5%, and that would be so much fun. Mm. You know, We'd have to expand the parliament about 450 seats from its 300 and... 24 or 332. Yeah, representation certainly would be better. And uh, the minority, well. Well, you're gonna, need, you're gonna need a half and half though. The pre, pre, first mm. past the post gotta be directly representing a region. Yeah, and maybe. then there's gonna be the party list. Maybe. You can't let the party list dominate all of parliament. These are people who are indirectly elected. Like, you know, like if I vote for the marijuana party and the top four people get in because we got three or 4% of the vote, that's pretty indirect democracy handing power there. So there should always be at least half the members directly first past the post, and then the other half are proportional yeah. representatives. There's different styles of it too. Yeah, like so that everybody who gets over 2% is represented, but you're still gonna need that direct accountability. Gotcha. What do you got coming up? Uh, you're talking about, uh, you're in Toronto now, right? Yeah, well, I was traveling for seven months since last August, and I was here for in Toronto for four months. I'm here during the baseball season. How long have you been out? When did you when did you land in North and uh, in Canada again? I got out on April fourteenth, twenty fourteen, from that five year stint oh, in the U.S. for selling seeds years. to Americans. By wow. mail. Started out as twenty eight to forty years, so I was just grateful to get five. What were the uh, politics the whole... behind that extradition? It was. Well, I, I I mean, I don't I get enraged about, about many things, about but... what I was doing. I did sell three million seeds to Americans. I was using that money to subvert their democracy, so <clears throat> I'll explain. Hmm. I was spending that money like nobody's business when I got it. That's, I, that's my brother there. <laughs> and uh, I was spending it, so I financed uh, the 1998... Washington, D.C. Medical Marijuana Initiative, the Colorado 2000 Initiative, the Arizona 2002 Initiative. I threw money at the Alaska Initiatives three uh, years in a row, 2002, 2000, 2004. And, and I, was just, I was taking the U.S. federal government to court in Philadelphia in a class action suit. So I'm spending millions of dollars um, fighting what, in whatever way is possible. Like, for example... A Canadian guy like me paying for a ballot initiative in Colorado is quite amusing. First of all, it's not legal. I'm not allowed to spend money on U.S. elections, but it was really easy just to give my friends 10000 here, 10000 there, and end up paying for the whole thing, or a good chunk of it, um, because you had to go. we paid people to go get signatures. You pay them about a dollar a signature in those days. It's probably more now, <clears throat> but it's still the way it's done. So we paid for the signatures to get it on the ballot, and then we won. And that's in 2000. That's the medical one. So I was having all sorts of fun sponsoring initiatives everywhere, rallies, marches, class action suits against the U.S. federal government. And I would boast about it as a way of getting people to buy my seeds. I would say, see, when you send me money for these seeds, not only do you get great seeds, but I'm going to fuck shit up in the United States with your money. And so it worked great. I gave, I gave over $5 million dollars from 1995 to 2005. But, and so the DEA was watching this, and so I was giving them a lot of incentive to come after me, but how much money they spent, and 32 different US Canadian organizations were involved, including Homeland Security, DEA, FBI, I Internal Revenue Service, the US Postal Service, uh, the, it just goes on and on. It's staggering how many people were involved and prosecutors. They bought seeds from me, for example, in every one of the United States they ordered by mail. And when DEA makes a buy, they're not small buys. They're big buys. When the agent, Agent Menendez, um, came and bought them from me in person, Seriously? he bought like $3,000 at a time, which is a big sale. And that guarantees that you're not going to get cold feet once they start dangling this huge amount of money. Because I was used to big purchasers, right? They were still like nice to get, 3000 bucks. I didn't see many people come up with 3000 bucks, And she didn't come just once. She came over a year and bought it for me four times, these kind of huge quantities, right? So they've got some serious money going on when they, when they get you. Unbelievable. Well, the investigation was uh, two years and ten months long. And it started three days after I 
humiliated uh, the drug czar John Walters when he came to visit Vancouver in November 2002. So you bet there was a lot of political motivation. That was a highly motivated uh, extradition and arrest. <laughs> I humiliated them. I was embarrassing them. And I was boasting about it. And people like that, they, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was thinking more of it. I know that uh, certainly the American politics of it, but the, the Canadian politics, what got me, I said, we're really sending this it, guy down to the States. He got 3,000 letters, exactly 3,001 letters opposing my extradition and only seven in favor. And they still extradited me. I'm, I'm It's pretty beautiful. They got 3,000 handwritten letters against it. And that had no influence on them, which just goes to show you the government doesn't really give a fuck about your opinion once they're in power. No matter who they are, they do what they want to do, and they have political reasons for doing that. And it won't matter what, heck, it won't even matter what your own party wants. Because the prime minister, he wants to make sure uh, SNC Lavalin isn't prosecuted, and that's his, you know, penultimate desire, right? At this moment. So, you know, if he wants to make it happen, it happens. But if he doesn't, you know, then you're in big trouble. So, you know, I was. I was embarrassing the U.S. government, embarrassing the Canadian government, boasting about all these things. So, you know, you know, I have no bad things to say about my prison experience. It was very, very wonderful in so many ways. I have nothing but fond memories of all my prisons that I've been into. I can tell you every one of them, where I was, how long. And for me, there was so much redemptive. I read 140 books in that five years. I learned to play bass guitar. I was in a rock and roll band for three years. I practiced on a musical instrument two, three hours a day. I couldn't believe I'm playing note-for-note -note versions of songs that I've grown up all my life loving, like uh, Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix. I knew seven of his songs. Three Stevie Ray Vaughan songs. I knew how to play Come Together by the Beatles, Jumpin' Jack Flash, you know, Bob Marley songs, Otis Redding songs, Nirvana. I can play Come As You Are and Smells Like Teen Spirit. I mean, I couldn't believe I was doing this, right? That it was, and, you know, I enjoyed the quiet time. I wrote the best stuff I've ever written in my life in prison. Yeah. Uh, typically, that's not uncommon. You can write some good quality material there because um, you get quality thinking time. In the real world, you don't get much quality thinking time. You know, there's this distraction of our screens here. Um, there's drugs. There's sex. There's pornography. There's the boredom of marriage. Um, there's going to work. There's children. There's things. Always there's something to distract you. You really just don't get hour after hour of quality thinking time where you could meditate or you could write or you could think. And I really enjoyed that opportunity. But as many of the inmates will tell you wherever I was, I made the prison kind of like my office. I could make things happen in a way no one else could because I had people on the outside that could make phone calls happen or books arrive or, you know, whatever somebody needed. Like a, hard to believe that in a prison – there's going to be guys who don't have their own Bible, but a couple of guys doing life came to me one day and said, I don't have a Bible. And they make a nice one that you can get your name in it. And I thought, I'll absolutely get you this Bible. Um, and, and actually I probably got several Bibles actually for people. There, there's some better than normal Bibles out there. Um, insofar as, you know, if you're going to be a lifer, one out of every eight guys I was with, there would typically be about 150 to 160 guys in my unit. And uh, at least 25 to 30 are doing life without parole. So uh, you never, I'd try never to say no to those guys if they needed a favor. Because I couldn't imagine life without parole. Wow. Those, and Bibles being hard <clears throat> to get in prison doesn't seem like, uh, I'd think of anything else, they'd be encouraging that. But Well, the religious people all get together. Like the Muslims are all together, the Christians. There's various kinds of Christians. Um, there's, your religious people are going to be there. Um, but that doesn't mean anybody's paying for your own, in, you know, personal Bible wow. or like that. You can get a cheap one because oh, okay. yeah. books are abused, right? Hmm. Um, but you know, hmm. there are some nice Bibles out there, so I, I would get those for occasionally. I got a good story though about guys with getting life without parole. Life without parole. Okay, um, it's almost all black guys, and it's almost all for crack cocaine. <laughs> you'd be surprised. No, maybe you wouldn't be, but you'd be surprised <laughs> how many guys were doing life for relatively small amounts of drugs. And for that matter, in five years, I never met what you'd call a kingpin. If I there was one, he would have been introduced to me. But I never met any kingpins. I always met just the low-level drug mules, and they end up getting, like, life without parole. There's this one guy, Nate Carter. 
And he's, uh, at first, he really annoyed me when I got to that prison because he had a voice, a loud, scratchy voice, and he was very animated during any American football game and any American basketball game. He was a big fan of LeBron James, and prisons usually divided between LeBron haters and LeBron fans, and they love going at it with each other, razzing each other. And they razz each other fairly loud, and because blacks constitute a clear majority in any prison, you're not going to argue with them. And it's, anyway... At first, I'm thinking, that guy is really loud. And then my cellmate said, yeah, but he's a really good guy, actually, when you get to know him. And besides, he's doing life without parole. So are you going to go tell him? And that's when I learned you don't ever tell people who are doing life without parole to shut up or be quiet or anything because they could go crazy and they have nothing to lose. As it turns out, most of them are incredibly civil guys, considering from my perspective, they have nothing to lose. Anyway, <clears throat> over the years that go goes by, and uh, one day I used to get all the legal news because I used to be the jailhouse lawyer in a lot of places. And I got a note from someone who said, Mark, the attorney general of the United States, Eric Holder, is going to kick guys out, is what he says, who are doing long, nonviolent terms um, over 10 years, uh, sorry, over 20 years, who have served over 10 years. So one day I say to Nate, hey, the attorney general's got something new. Nate, how long have you been here? He says, 18 years. I said, what's the year since his life without parole, right? He says, yeah. I said, well, listen, do you have any violence in your past at all? And he goes, no, nothing. So I said, well, Nate, you should fill this forms out and send them in. He says, no, I do it every year. Nothing ever happens. I'm not doing it. I said, you really should do it, Nate, because this is meant for you, I'm sure. Before, yes, with Clinton and Bush, it was useless. But Obama might really be serious. Anyway, weeks go by, I badger him every day. And then finally, when he says, okay, if you help me, I'll do it. But he says, but I've got it before and nothing's going to happen so sure enough anyway we fill it out and that's where i learn all about him i go nate have you ever had any violent infractions in the prison that's important too and he goes no i've never even had an infraction i said nate i have had three infractions and i'm you know i'm a normal human being in this prison and i have three infractions how can you have been here 18 years and not even have a slight infraction he says well i don't i said well that's going to look really good so we write all this down we send it to the government and i get released huzzah and I come home, and I forget all about Nate Carter, unfortunately, uh, until two years later, in, July, in May 2016, he calls me and says, Mark, I just got a letter from the president. I'm going to get out in July with no strings attached. I got that executive clemency. And he goes, Mark, you made me do it. Thank you so much, and God bless you. And every three weeks, he calls me up wherever I am in the world, and he says, Mark, where are you? And I say where I am, which last time was actually, I think, Barcelona. And he says, well, Mark, I love life. I love my family. I love freedom. God bless you. Thanks for everything. And he always asks how Jody is, too, because he used to see Jody come and visit me. Whenever he had a visit, Jody would be there with me. And so he always got used to seeing her, and everybody kind of got used to Jody because she came to see me 81 times, which is another amazing story. Because 81 visits to me, 14 hours it took her to go from Vancouver to either Georgia, southeast Georgia, like as far away as you or Mississippi, 14 hours to get there, and another 14 hours on the Monday to go back. So she visited me 81 times. That's 162 days in travel, five and a half months of her life, and 162 days sitting beside me for five hours, a, and that's five and a half hours or five and a half months of her life there too. So 11 months of her whole life was either traveling to see me or sitting beside me during that five years. So I'm really lucky about that. Anyway, Nate always calls me up every three weeks. And that's the, the best thing that I ever did in all the time I was in prison. I'm really pleased about a lot of things I did. I was jailhouse lawyer for a lot of people, and I didn't need to charge anybody anything because I was well supported by my wife and what have you. So the guys in the prison tended to be real nice to me everywhere. And that's my best story. Nate Carter is out because I badgered him into sending uh, for an executive clemency to President Obama, and he got it. And he's also got a letter from the president, which I don't have. So he's good for him. He's got an autograph letter from President Obama. And he's out of prison, and he calls me up, and it makes me feel really good when he calls me. What's which goes to show you, you can do a lot in prison. Wow. You know, yeah. like a lot of satisfying things. I've got dozens of stories of being able to help people do stuff or just plain strange things that happen to you in prison that kind of teach you a lesson. How old are you now, Mark? 61. 61. And so what are you working on? What's the, what's the future look like for Mark Emery now? <laughs> well, I'm actually in a state of flux. I've been traveling for seven months, and I used up a lot of money. 
So now I have to start thinking about what I'm going to do for work or who I'm going to work for, or what I'm going to do. Cannabis culture? What, you sold out well, of that? Or? It's, you know, Jody owns that. Oh, okay. Jody runs it. Okay. So I, I gave it to her for a dollar in 2010. I did think I would get it back. <laughs> we had quite a bit of arguments about that for a while. But ultimately, she prevailed because she said, well, Mark, I've been doing this for five years, and now you come back. I don't know if I can be your sidekick anymore. I've been running everything for five years. Being your sidekick isn't very appealing. She said, you could just travel around the world. Everybody loves you. <laughs> travel doesn't appeal to Jody in the same way because uh, for her, it's just not that pleasant. Mm. Um, <clears throat> she's an introvert. I'm an extrovert, so she's correct. I love traveling. I love meeting people. Everybody is great to me everywhere I go. Whenever people ask me, is a place safe or people friendly? I say, they're all safe and they're all friendly. That's my experience. As soon as somebody mugs me, I'll tell you that place is not safe and not friendly. But otherwise, you know, everywhere I go, travel is a beautiful thing. And I'm having trouble decompressing because life is so boring here. I mean, I've been doing all my tasks and stuff. I had a lot to do when I got back, but it's like done in five days now. I've got dental work on Friday, which is why I'm back in Canada at all. I'm supposed to be in Greece right now, Santorini. Um, and that is a lot more appealing than the gray Toronto April that is going on here. Oh, my goodness. What do you and got there in... are many pretty buildings in Canada. Oh. Like, I've been to Europe, Spain, and France, and South Africa, and Morocco, and all the major capitals of South America, you know, Mexico. There's just not a lot of beauty in Toronto. It's nice. I like living here, but it's just not a beautiful place. So I guess uh, it's fair to say. So you remember the PPC then? So I hate to bring it back to politics all the time, oh, but I'm just sure. fascinated by you know. Your... Max is great. I hope he gets a lot of support. Yeah. Huh. I like the guy a lot. He, to me, he resonates. He's so sincere. He's right on the money. Stop pandering. And so we need a politician who doesn't pander. Well, and this is it. I mean, I was talking to a buddy of mine, Greg Vesna. I don't know if you know the name, but he's I been do. around a long time, and he's Monia business, early days There's of the There's a Green trophy Party. named after him. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, and, and just, you know, we're hopeful people, and we get sucked in. We drank the Kool-Aid on Justin. I really, we were oh, so boy. glad to get hey, rid of Harper. Though, he got a lot of votes from us. He's going to miss them. Yeah, we're, well, we, got, we were so damn uh, ready to get rid of Harper that – and uh, we did great under Harper. That's the problem. We, things yeah. got really good with Harper. Mm. We all started opening shops up and breaking the law and getting away with it. And, but him and yeah. I were talking the other day. He's like, Jimmy, I helped him get elected as leader. What are you, are you like, we all drunk the Kool-Aid because <laughs> not as influential as uh, some of us. But uh, so are, are you going to are you going to do anything for the party? Do you think other than no, just support I, I, I'll give him the maximum amount and yeah. I will help out on any campaign. Um, but he probably doesn't need a guy as controversial and notorious as I am. I don't running. think Max is afraid of controversy at all. That's what I like about him. He just says it. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot true, that but, needs to be but, said right now. How, how did, sorry to cut you out, Mark. You don't want candidates who necessarily distract from the leader's message. Hmm. See, Max's message is really good. So yeah. high profile candidates are desirable. Yes. If they let people focus on the message. Um, wow. And to some degree, now here's the thing I like though. In uh, the riding of Burnaby South, where the uh, by election was held, right, the People's Party candidate did like 11% mm -hmm. and only did like 3 to 4% in the other ridings, the other three ridings in the by election, right? So they did really great in Burnaby. But during that campaign, the conservative guy said, Mark Emery's endorsing Maxim Bernio, the Prince of Pot, wants to legalize pot, and he thinks Max is great. <laughs> and quoted me and put this all around town on these posters. And, it, you know, and then the People's Party candidate got all indignant about it and raised a fuss. But the fact is, she did three times better than any other riding. So I'm going to take a little bit of credit for that. And that some of my people saw that and said, well, Mark yeah. likes Max and Bernie. I got to get out and vote for him. How does Mark Emery get away these days with uh, the political correctness culture? Well, you don't. I've been publicly shamed over something uh, as trivial that happened 10, 15 years ago and that I I contest is completely distorted because people today can re resent or regret activities they, they embraced 10, 15 years ago when they have a change in personal philosophy. Amen. They can, they can <laughs> change the way they look at the same event. Hmm. 
I'll give you an extreme I mean, example. that can happen on a daily basis, went, but yeah, I, I get to, what you're saying. I went, you know, I went to an orgy once in 2000, yeah, November 2000, and I took some women with me. If you ask those women today what they think about going to that orgy, their response is going to be different than what they thought at the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> My response might even be different, right? Because we, we look at things differently over time. And other people discover Christ. They discover religion. When women have babies, they get very conservative, right? So whereas they were wild, wild, uh, hard-living, oh, fast-living times before a baby, once the baby's born, they go through a kind of a conservative transformation. Protection. Um, this is why, this yeah, is why everything the changes. Mom you need to protect is the baby. the highly sought-after uh, electorate ideal because these are typically conservative people who have children um, who show up to vote because they have a vested interest. So... All these things, and then we have the identity politics that's practiced today on the campuses and coming from our academia. And everybody in this kind of post-Marxist world is looked at as either someone with power or someone who doesn't have power, someone who oppresses or someone who is oppressed. In other words, every relationship breaks down into uh, male-female, black-white, rich-poor, um, working-class, you know, white. And it's no, there's no end to that kind of division. And so as long as you think like that, we're, that's a doomed philosophy. I just like to think that everybody overall in Canada gets a fair shake at, at what we have to offer as a nation and as a culture. And compared to 93% of women, for example, in Egypt who go through female genital mutilation or all the poverty I've seen around the world, um, all the exclusion, um, when you look at Latin America and you look at Africa and you look at Southern Europe and you look at Asia, I think the status of women, for example, and gay people is superior in Canada to almost anywhere when it comes to freedoms, liberties, protections, mm. uh, safeties, health. Uh, all those outcomes are much more favorable here than anywhere else in the world. So I'm, uh, you've got to be careful about the people who hate this country that want to cause division. Right. I, but, you know, I heard these extreme things, too. When I was in prison in the USA, they would go, Mark, Harper is so awful. He's changed everything. Hey, you won't even recognize the country. I came back. It looked just the same. <laughs> it sounded the same. And then they voted Harper out a year later. And now nobody talks about, oh, Harper permanently changed the landscape or Harper made the country unrecognizable. It's not unrecognizable. It's just like I hear the same thing now from the conservatives whining about Justin Trudeau. Oh, he's ruining the country. He's wrecking. It's not wrecked. It's not ruined. It takes more than a politician to ruin this country, for God's sake. Um, and, and they do lots of damage. But Canada is much too big for one person, even over a generation, to really adversely affect. Canada's made up of Canadians. The politicians are really just at the back of the flock trying to follow the people ahead and, and try to get ahead of the the, mm. the popular wave, but right. yeah. politicians so don't don't change the. I don't think they change the nature of this country. I think the people do, and that's why I'm worried about what goes on in academia, because this is where all our young people are learning all their, you know, philosophy from. Mm. And yeah, when you said a mouthful there, and I was, just before we went live, I was kind of venting my frustration uh, of the 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 political shift that I've had. I mean, I've, I've run in 10. Well, you turned right wing like so many people appalled with the left. Well, I am very concerned with my freedom of speech and yours and, yeah. and everyone else and every idiot. Well, and you're every... free to say anything as long as it doesn't trigger any one of a hundred different intersectional groups who are easily offended. And, and, uh, you know, your microaggressions are making life unsafe for them. In fact, your words are violence. If you listen to them, and preach, know, Mark Emery, preach, man. That's, it's home yeah, like here's that. the thing, though. That's why freedom of speech really is in danger and why young people embrace socialism and don't really care much about freedom of speech. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, too. I, I was thinking what a marvel technology is, what it, what it can do for us. I'll give you the great thing about it. This device here, I pay $10.77 every month. And I have access to 76 million recorded songs. In fact, the entire pantheon of recorded music is available for $10.99 every month. When I, when I was a kid, for $10, you got 10 songs on vinyl that would deteriorate over time. And that $10 was worth like $100 today, right? So my, my one record purchase would probably buy the equivalent of one year of Google Play, and it's $76 million. Now, here's what I want to know. 
anybody that has access to every song ever recorded for ten dollars a month has no right to complain about shit <laughs> nothing you spoiled and grateful child you should be kissing an Preach, image of Steve Jobs Mark every day Emery, and my, with Sergey Brin for too, prime minister man every song this ever is so true man as often as you like for ten dollars a month this is becoming the narrative I think uh Ben of Ben Shapiro you're gonna complain about living in the best time that oh, we've ever sure. been in. Hey, There's no in one Paris. starving in North America. Well, I'm, very few people are starving in North America, and the poor have iPhones. So, but yeah, and, you, and what you're complaining about and gender pronouns? I, I got a toothache in Paris that within 48 hours became a rampant infection, which 85 years ago would have killed me because mm. we didn't invent antibiotics and it didn't become commonly until 1945. So little I, gratitude. So, yeah, so I'm thinking... Gee, I would have had to have my whole mouth operated on. Mm -hmm. I might have died. I would have lost a lot yeah. of my face because I had an infection I can't do anything about. But instead, it cost me like $10 in antibiotics. And now I'm cured getting dental surgery later on this week. That'll cost me. But the point is, is that we live in an age of miracles. And ages of miracles. Can you imagine when, my, when I was born, we didn't even have socialized medicine, if you think that's a good thing. And so... Healthcare has gotten so much better for people. They have so many more options. You can read about everything now. You can find out about your own health choices better than you ever could before. You have access to herbs and pills and whatever kind of doctor you want, right? If, you, if you're thinking, if you're sentient, if you're embracing this world, there's unbelievable treasures every day, everywhere. Mm. So the idea, too, that we need to find hate, we need to find division, we need to encourage comparatives. Whenever you compare yourself with someone else, you're going to lose because mm. half the world is better off and half the world is not better off than you are. And half the world is probably more talented than you are and half the world isn't. You know, and there's a whole bunch of advantages. We all have advantages and disadvantages when we compare, which is why it's fruitless to do so. Mm. We should all be grateful we're alive and whatever we've got, we're lucky to have. And let's hope for the best in staying healthy and living a long, prosperous life. That should be about it. Mm. Uh, I consider you a forward thinker. I hope you're not flattered too much by that. But um, and, and just talking it might not be true either. To some. Uh, and just, um, you know, a couple of things you said there as far as, you know, the rat sometimes. Well, a lot of the times. Uh, things like simple things like penicillin or insulin come from the radical extremes, right? And we look at these people like they're like they're actually witchcraft in a practicing. I mean, you look at history well, and some of the solutions that we adopted uh, come from the radical extremes. What do you, if you were to forecast out, what do you think you could say that something that feels extreme now that might be common practice in no time? Anything? Well, I think all technology feels extreme. Like the iPhone was pretty amazing then. It's pretty amazing now. But I know when uh, they discovered penicillin in, what is it, Fleming, uh, discovered penicillin by mold on bread applied to a bacteria, diminished the bacteria. Yeah, That's they wanted to have trippy, them committed, didn't it's they? It's a pretty trippy kind of thing. You know, what if you got all this bread mold? It's like somebody's thinking the guy's a bachelor who just won't clean the fuck up. <laughs> And then next thing you know, he's saving millions of people around the world, right? By the way, there's a great book about that, too, called uh, A Brilliant Radiance, about how penicillin was discovered and what a group effort it was, mm -hmm. and how when we really want to mobilize our resources, we can do incredible things in a short period of time. Um, because that went from uh, the discovery of its, uh, its practical application in 1938, 39, to it being available to every human uh, in North America for two cents a dose um, by 1945 you know so we went from you were going to die if you got a lot of these infections in 1939 to you're going to live for sure mm -hmm. you know that's incredible stuff that we have put behind us you know it, it bothers me when I see people don't like vaccinations <coughs> I mean I wish I had a chicken pox vaccination when I was a kid it wasn't around then um, so I'm not at any risk of getting shingles. It would be nice if I were vaccinated for that. In my day, of course, they made us all get it together. <laughs> so I got measles, German measles, red measles, chicken pox, mumps, you name it. I've had all of those things, right? And generally that was good because I don't know anybody who had complications when I was a kid from any of that stuff. Um, but it's possible, I suppose. Mm. And everybody being vaccinated 
uh, would probably be, have been preferred. I got certainly the polio vaccine and dip, diphtheria and tuberculosis and, uh, you know, I haven't had any of those diseases in my life, so it obviously all worked out. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate your time, Mark. Uh, what else you got coming up we can look forward to? Well, I'll be in Vancouver for 420, the 25th anniversary. Uh, see me there. Um, and, and at the head of the parade at the Global Marijuana March in San Jose, Costa Rica. Um, at the first Cultivators Cup on the weekend of uh, May 23, 24. Uh, in Ochos Rios, and then I'm here writing my book. Um, I've got to start work on that on June 3rd, and then I start traveling again in, in November, and in the meantime, I hope to see a lot of Blue Jay games while I'm here. That's my agenda. <laughs> Sounds like a good one, brother. Well, I've... the election's in this time too, right? So for the next five, six months, we've got a national election. Naturally, I'm going to get people to try and support Max, but you know, it's tough because they're going to want to either get rid of Trudeau or keep Trudeau. So that means either voting liberal or voting for someone who can beat the liberal. And it's always hard to get people when they're starting out to get that wave going. Yeah. And, you know, I've been talking about Vez. He actually sat here. I did an interview with him the other day. And he, if you can believe this, he's suggesting voting strategically. Anyone but liberal. <laughs> well, you know what? Greg Vez has said right there. Your own, in your own wow. riding. In your own riding. It doesn't work on any other level because you only get one vote. So what does that mean practically, uh, voting strategy? It means beating, voting for the person who you think is most likely to beat the guy you don't like. Okay, well, your guy you don't like may not be the same as, you know, like, you, you got to decide, okay, who is it you don't like? What if you already have an NDP member? Are you going to vote NDP because that's keeping the Trudeau liberals at bay or you're denying your vote to them? Or are you going to vote for the conservatives? And determining who has the upper hand at any given point. Remember, Trudeau was in third up till a week before the election that made him prime minister, and then he soared ahead of the NDP, right? So people decided that they wanted to take a chance on him. And we don't have Mulcair. If Mulcair were still the leader of the NDP, he'd probably be forming the next government. Um, but he isn't. Weak leadership and, all uh, the way around in, in politics. Well, Singh has gotten to the point where his audience is national and larger than Brampton. In Brampton, you can get elected as a member of parliament. You can even get elected as uh, the NDP leader in, in Burnaby South. Um, but you can't, you're not going to influence this country, I think, uh, if you're a Sikh wearing a turban. Um, coming from a distinctly Sikh background, uh, I don't think Canadians are going to see the universality of that. I don't think they're going to say that as Canadianness. Um, and I'm not suggesting that's a white thing. I mean, we have French Canadians, we have women, we have native legislators, we have Chinese, we have we have Hindu, we have we have Muslim, we have people from all the areas in yeah. Canada. But as a leader of a socialist party, and that's what concerns me more than anything. But uh, and, and I say the same thing about Bernier. You know, it's it's hard to take a guy serious with that damn French accent. I'm sorry. See, I, I think, and see, I, I mean, think I, I, people are going to call you racist or say it's got nothing to do with politics or whatever. Uh, you're, you know, I know you've heard it all before. I, I get it too, especially when uh, you go I against like the grain. I like his accent. I don't yeah, feel I know. I mean, I, me I'm just saying. Official language, yeah. right? To me, he's telling me the truth in both official <laughs> languages, whereas all the rest are telling me lies in both official languages. <laughs> and I think Singh, for example, is the best speaker out of the three of them mm -hmm. but he's just not someone i have any trust or confidence in and hey and i've actually read the history of sikhism i'm one of the few white guys you're ever going to meet that can tell you the difference between the first guru and the tenth guru and when they were around and all about what's going on in Khalistan or slash the punjab i lived in india for a year some of you know my favorite writers in india typically are sikhs because they write in, in english a lot and they're awesome but it doesn't mean I, I really have lost any sense that everybody I know who's Sikh or Indian, East Indian, who's been elected in Canada, has had to use dicey, dodgy methods of getting those nominations. <clears throat> Heck, I've seen dead people resurrected for, you know, the Ujol Desange premiership in 2001, where the Sikh community mobilized various writings. I mean... The, you know, people bring their politics with them from their country of origin. And so you should be very wary of any Asian political machine.
right? Let alone of any like ideological left wing, right wing political machines, what this sort of thing. So <coughs> I don't, tr I wouldn't vote for Andrew Scheer because he's not principled. Um, I can't vote for Trudeau because he gave us the Cannabis Act. And I can't vote for the NDP because they support all this identity politics and, you know, irrational economic proposals and plans. I would say my support would be, you know, Elizabeth May on one hand, because she's trustworthy and sincere, and I don't think she's trying to lie to me, even if I think she's wrong on some issues. Mm -hmm. And Maxim Bernier, who I do agree with everything, and I think his English is very charming, actually. Uh, I think he's a decent gentleman, and it comes out just like my the guy I love the most in my whole lifetime, Ron Paul, the U.S. representative, um, was the greatest of all statesmen in the Congress, a fabulous person. Um, a mentor to me and someone I love. I think Max has a lot of Ron Paul in him, so I'm excited to, and hope that Max can keep his seat and uh, build that party. Well, integrity's lacking everywhere, and when you see it in politics, it's almost like you're surprised yeah, but by it. People don't value yeah. it, though. Like People talk like they value it, but they don't really value it, or they'd all be on Max's side, because Max, Max reeks integrity. But the problem with integrity is you're going to end up saying things that offend people who want you to pander to them. It could be a dairy monopoly. It could be, you know, uh, an ethnic group. It could be young people. It could be old people. It could be veterans. It's hard not to pander to people when given the opportunity if you're a politician because you want people to like you. And it's not <laughs> your money. It's someone else's money. So fuck it. Go, go crazy with buying people off and pandering to them. Max shows a lot of nerve by saying, I'm not going to do any of that. You know, and yeah. we're going to watch him to make sure he doesn't do any of that. Yeah, he's uh, not afraid to take a chance. I, I had him for about 40 minutes there a couple well, of weeks Max ago. Max is and... not taking a chance. It's what Max believes. He's just not going to change who well, he I is. Well, I mean, uh, politically. He's got this far by being Max. He's going to keep Fair enough. Being... Yeah. Uh, and leaving the question open to his candidates on uh, on abortion, I think it's interesting, especially when uh, the next thing out of his mouth is, oh, and if you elect a PPC member, don't be surprised if his uh, private member's bill comes before. Uh, and... <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, we got to well, we got to stop those. The problem is, is abortion laws can it can never be enforced because you're always going to either arrest the doctor. So if abortion is murder, that means as the boyfriend, if I suggest you should have an abortion, I'm counseling to murder. Your doctor is counseling you to murder. Um, your family is counseling you to murder. It's just ridiculous to start talking about abortion being equivalent to murder because that means everybody who had any say in the decision is going to be up. It's just nutty. It's just nutty. Um, we shouldn't be telling people what to do with doctors or drugs they take or abortions they get. And I get it. You know, it's but, you know, I when I was 17, my girlfriend had an abortion at five months and it was in the, possibly the most traumatic thing I've ever been through my, myself. And sometimes, you know, I wonder, you know, about that. But at the same time, I don't want people telling me what's going on. You don't know my life. Stay well away from those kind of decisions and if mistakes are made mistakes are made Spoken people like got to accept their decisions but but i don't i don't trust other people telling me about things like that and i was only mm -hmm. 17 you know then when she was only 17 my doctor wanted us to have children that's a somewhat of a fascinating story but that's for another time that's for the next show yeah brother i appreciate that uh just before i get where, who are you trusting to give you news these days <laughs> well i listen to mostly mainstream things because they still have old-fashioned editorial techniques like fact checking um grammar uh confirming <laughs> uh, a source et cetera, et cetera. the problem is is as a as the uh, person involved in a recent public shaming in january i had all these people uh you know global news newspapers reporting basically what they admitted was uncorroborated, unverified, unproven. But we need the clickbait, so it's hot, so we'll get it out there, right? And I, So journalism is definitely diminished as to the degree of uh, quality and verification and confirmation um, because it takes time to get the story right, you know, uh, whereas it takes no time just to repeat something verbatim and get it out there and try and capitalize on the clickbait. Right, because that's all it is anymore. The, in the old days, you you kept on top of a story until the story was resolved, but that's not that profitable. That requires some deep investigation, somebody on it. Whereas getting the story the first time, uh, or in time for the wave, is what's regarded as important now. 
So I get my news from all the usual sources. I don't actually trust alternate news until I see a major media confirmation. Mm. Because, like, I trust the New York Times to at least spend money on an issue, even if they have a bias. What people forget is the New York Times employs hundreds of people, and it covers the extreme spectrums, left, right, vegan, individualist, transphobic, and transpositive, and all these other things in between. So, of course, any really good media you're going to be incensed by occasionally, as well as in agreement with occasionally, and possibly neutral the majority of times, because I don't feel we should have to take a side when we read a story. A lot of times it's just information we can think about. There's nothing that can be done. For the ordinary people, 99% of the things we read are things we cannot do anything about, mm. right? Like an earthquake in somebody. You could give money, the weather, forest fires around the world, you know, or climate change. You could change a few things. We could use less plastic maybe or, you know, minor things, but... Most things are out of our hands. There's really no point in reading a lot of news. Mm. Even this Trudeau thing, have you seen how much oxygen? I buy, I'm buying newspapers now, and the National Post, I think, had eight pages solid about SNC-Lavalin. It's just not worth that much. And Stop I, it. I, 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 I hear you. Um, and <laughs> like it's I, just the usual business of Parliament, and that's usually fairly corrupt. But, true you enough. Know. It's, I appreciate your comments about the clickbait. Uh, the other day, I uh, it was they were having somebody was testifying and I had Fox on one uh, Fox in the States on one channel, CNN on the other channel. And I couldn't even, like, I don't watch either one of them, but I just wanted to see what they look like side by side. And then the next day we had uh, the Canadian version of it. So I'm CTV and CBC. <laughs> you can't even believe the difference between the headlines and the graphics they're putting yeah. up to. And I'm thinking, Hey, these are kind of, you know, you're talking about the, you know, the left wing um, the in, in our in our institutions and in our learning yeah. institutions, universities. It's, it's certainly inherent in our media as well. We don't really have a conservative slanted news outlet that says, hey, yeah, we're conservative and we're going to present conservative news. These guys are presenting themselves as as you know, unbiased. And my feeling is, is that they're not. And I'm surprised that well, getting, uh, and I get your verification. $500 million from the federal government every year in a subsidy. Now it's going to make a lot of people very reluctant to criticize the federal government when they're doling out these massive amounts of cash, which are going to probably keep a lot of old businesses propped up that probably should be moving on. But at the same time, CBC should compete on the same playing field as all the rest. Right. The idea of subsidizing CBC is probably increasingly unpopular with young people because I'm sure only mostly older people are listening to CBC. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think that's a, a, a bastion of young people sure getting enough. their cultural you know, stimulation from. I don't see that at all. Mm -hmm. Anyway, listen, I'm going to run out of power. It's been fun. OK, brother. I appreciate your time. Thank you very yeah, much. Anytime. All right. Talk all right. Soon. Over now. Thanks, Mark. So, yeah.